0: You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Bob Zadek, welcoming you to the country's longest-running libertarian broadcast, available 8 a.m. Pacific Sunday mornings on selected a.m. stations and streamed nationally at that time through 860 a.m., The Answer. A decade of prior shows are on the Bob Zadig Show podcast, and BobZadig.com has related resource material, a book list, and other podcasts of interest. We offer in-depth and focused content on political, social, and economic issues, always with the ideal guest, accessible and entertaining. In short, ideas, not attitude. Today's show embodies that standard. Tom DiLorenzo taught economics at Loyola University, Maryland, and is presently on the faculty of the Mises Institute. His published books include Problems with Socialism, that must be a fat book, and How Capitalism Saved America, an even fatter book, I predict, and has just published The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. Tom's recent blog posting explaining how the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act is nothing other than a Trojan horse for Green New Deal socialist policies made it clear to me that he's the perfect guest at the perfect time to help us understand the legislative disaster that lies before us. Tom, welcome to the show. I'm pleased to be with you. Now, Tom, your book... Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics, explain how those two concepts found their way in the same book title. What is politically incorrect or correct about economics? And what point were you trying to make in the
2: book? Political correctness uh, infected the economics from the very beginning. And and a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of the economists, uh, academic economists, have always been essentially propagandists for the state, first and foremost. And uh, Doug Casey, the uh, uh, well-known Wall Street investor, uh, wrote an article in which he called um, most economists that you see on TV or write for the New York Times. I call them economic witch doctors. And they're basically making an argument in favor of the political establishment one way or another. And it often uh, is contradicts economic common sense and the things that uh, economists like myself and uh, I've been uh, learning and teaching about it for years. I was an economics professor for 41 years, and so uh, th- that's what's politically incorrect about it. Even the uh, the uh, the American Economic Association, the trade association of academic economists, when it was created in in the 1880s, the founding document condemned laissez-faire capitalism as uh, unsafe in in, in morals unsound in morals and unsafe in practice. And it, and it said we need more inter- government intervention, and they wanted to tie the government intervention to the church to to, to religion. And they apparently wanted to make uh, people think that government intervention and some version of socialism was God's will. And that, That's how things started out. But there always was a remnant of uh, free market economists from uh, associated with the Austrian School of economics, and later the, the so-called Chicago School. And even there's a school of thought called the Public Choice School, which some professors of mine, James Buchanan, who won the Nobel Prize, was a professor of mine. And it it uses economics to analyze political decision making. And there's a whole big theory of government failure uh, attached to this school of thought, uh, public choice. And so my book talks about these schools of thought that I call a remnant of sort of free market, libertarian-oriented economists. And and it goes over a lot of the myths that have been created over the years by the interventionist economists, and in the, in the, so it's sort of a myth mythbuster book. It's not a textbook.
1: There's a, a question that comes to mind triggered triggered in my head by the very title of your book. You have in the title two words: political and economics. And here's my question, Tom: There is almost nothing, almost nothing in the Constitution, about economics. There's no rules. There's no rules that Congress shall create the Federal Reserve. There's no rule about people should be free to interact with each other as long as there's no fraud or coercion. There's none of these free market rules, nor is there anything about the the need for a top-down economic system. So, Where do politics and economics come together? Is the study of economics the study of how to govern, or is it simply the result of observations, the way other scientific endeavors are, where scientists observe and then draw conclusions based upon observations? So put us together, as your title does, join together Economics and politics, what does one have to do with the other, and where do we find the rules?
2: Uh, well the uh, you know the study of economics you're right uh, doesn't necessarily have anything at all to do with politics. It's an attempt to understand how the world works and not just the economic world. it's, it's all about human action and human incentives, and it can help you understand a lot about the uh, life in general, not just not just money and finance, and things like that. But politics has always infected economics. And uh, economists, ever since, especially beginning around the 1930s, economists started seeing themselves as advisors to politicians, first and foremost. And they started rewriting their textbooks uh, in a way that was, didn't just explain uh, how the economic world works, but, but as giving advice and how to plan the economy. And uh, this, this was a result of the so-called Keynesian Revolution of the 1930s, named after John Maynard Keynes, the uh, the British economist, f- uh, famous British economist, you he know, wrote this famous book called The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, and it created this whole new field of macroeconomics. And so beginning around that time, there was sort of a perversion of economics away from just understanding, using the laws of economics, uh, uh to understand how the world works, to uh, economists looking at themselves as advisors to politicians and, and central planners. And as far as the Fed goes, the Constitution gives the federal government the uh, the ability to coin money, but not to print money. It's only the coinage that is mentioned in the Constitution. But, of course, the politicians started ignoring the Constitution as soon as the ink was dry. And so uh and so we, it took them until 1913 to get the Fed and there were many battles over that over whether we should have a national bank or not there were there were several versions of a national bank run by politicians before the Fed uh, Andrew Jackson vetoed one of them out of existence in the early 1840s and we and we didn't really resurrect it until 1913 when we got the Fed but then, uh, then uh, you know, beginning of, at that time, uh, the economics profession did change and economists started looking at themselves as sort of uh, fortune tellers and advisors to governments.
1: I'd like to repeat something you just said, because I found it to be quite helpful to me in how you answered my question. The link between as I understood what you said, the link between economics and politics is that economists, like other scientists, think Anthony Fauci, for I pick one at random, uh, scientists observe and present themselves to the world as scientists who have discovered secrets. Of behavior, of physics, of chemistry, they have discovered it through the scientific method. And they then present themselves to the government and they say, if you want to accomplish a certain goal, let's say economic growth, prosperity, if you want to promote economic growth, just like if you want to cure the coronavirus, if you want to accomplish a goal, then we, through our understanding of the science, in this case, the science of economics, we will tell you what you have to do to accomplish that. And the government then picks the scientists, because more than one economist or economists have different points of view. Keynesian, which is a top-down central planning type government, uh, and free marketeers, the opposite, kind of. The government will select the scientists to believe. So I think what you have said, uh, and I want to see that I have it right, is that the way that economists get to make the rules is by persuading those who do make the rules to follow the science. In this case, the science is Keynesian economics, or the science is Austrian school economics, or somewhere in between, is that a, a pretty good answer? Have I summarized your answer to my question accurately?
2: Yeah, that's pretty. That's probably about ninety percent accurate as, as far as what uh, what I think. And that uh, you know, there's this symbiotic relationship between a, a lot of economists and politicians, and uh, a lot of economists uh, work diligently at basically just providing plausible rationales for bigger and bigger government, more taxes, more interventionism, more control, and more socialism. And they sort of uh, twist and turn. And uh, a good example recently is uh, Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary who taught economics at Harvard for many years. He was the president of Harvard for many years, for several years. He goes on CNN and they asked him, uh, "What is the cause of the inflation that we're now suffering from?" And he said, "It was the January sixth protest in Washington D.C." And so that was just, you know. And he knows better. You he know, he's a smart guy. He taught economics at Harvard for years. For goodness sake, he had two uncles who were Nobel Prize winners in economics. And so, uh, and so, and so, that's sort of the poster boy for a a sort of an economic prostitute. Paul Krugman would be another one. He taught economics at Princeton for many years, and he used textbooks that are probably very similar to the ones I used, and they all defined a recession the same way for the past several generations. It's sort of an arbitrary definition, but it's the one all the economists use. It says basically when the economy shrinks for six months in a row, it's smaller. That's a recession. It's in all the textbooks that has been for generations. Paul Krugman goes on CNS, CNN and they ask him, are we in a recession? Uh, and he says, no, even though the Commerce Department just came out and said, yes, said, yes, we, we, we fit the definition of uh, real GDP falling for six months in a row. And, so, and he knows better also. And so and that's sort of the, two of the most egregious examples of what I'm talking about. It's not always so blatant as that. But but uh, beginning in the 1930s, economists began to understand that there was more money to be made, and it was more fun and more prestige to be in charge of a government agency or the advisor to a governor or a president or the head of a government agency than uh, standing before a classroom of undergraduates at some, some college somewhere. And so they became uh, much more interventionist-minded. Uh, out of their own self-interest. So then it, it seems to me that, and
0: I'm
1: going to move on from this concept after I just make this very short comment, that we've just gone through with COVID two years of follow the science. And no matter what you were advocating as far as the best governmental response to COVID, you defended, if you were in government, you defended your conclusion by saying, that's what the scientists have taught me. It sounds like in economics, those who follow Keynesian economists, Krugmans of the world, would say, I'm just following the science, don't yell at me, it's big government, I'm advocate for big government, of course the scientists who advise me tell me that. Or government can follow the free marketeer scientist and still follow the science. So it is a battle between competing competing opinion of different scientists, each defending their opinion not on a political observation, but on how they interpret the data. It's the same thing, whether it's COVID or inflation, COVID or money supply. Now, going beyond that, free market economics, as compared with, and they aren't really opposites, but they're very different, free market economics, which you explained so beautifully in your book, free market economics as compared with keynesian economics are you partial to or passionate about you can fill it you can supply your own label free market economics simply because it's pro freedom that is the the word free is the most important word or are you is your persuasion towards free market economics because it produces a certain result, prosperity, better than alternatives, alternative economic system. What is the standard by which you have concluded that one is better than the other? Well, I, I would
2: say both. Certainly freedom, and, uh, and, and of course, what, what holds human civilization together is the international division of labor. Uh, when I when I was teaching uh, in my uh, if I, an introductory class in economics around the first or second week, I would walk into class and tell them it would be humanly impossible for the thirty of us in the classroom here to produce a pizza from scratch, and they would sort of snicker at it because they would think, well, uh, uh, certainly I could. I could just go get a pizza, sh- buy a pizza shell at the grocery store, buy a jar of tomato sauce, and I've got a pizza. Stick it in the oven. And I would say, oh, no, from scratch. You would have to start out with a wheat farm. And then you would have to have all the technology that goes into a wheat farm. And then you would need the petroleum industry to provide the gasoline and the diesel fuel for everything, to run everything. You would need electric power and, and so forth. And that's just the wheat farm. And then you need a flour mill and all the technology that goes along with flour mill. And then the, as the story goes, you end up saying that, well, to get something as simple as a slice of pizza – lunch requires the efforts of hundreds of strangers all over the world, probably, to cooperate to produce this. They're all all pursuing their own self-interest to, to produce this thing cheaply and easily, and then uh, and that's that's what holds human civilization together, and it's also why Darwinianism is wrong. You know, the survival of the fittest. The poorest people in the country in a capitalist country. Can do okay. They can survive, and they have, can have hope to do much better tomorrow, because they don't need to produce their own food and their own automobile and their own clothing. They can they can rely on the division of labor and have other people do these things very cheaply. Uh, you know, go to Walmart if you want to see proof of that, and shop there. And so, so I would say both. It gives people freedom to to live their lives the way they want to do the things they want want and to support their family as well as they can and and also uh, it provides prosperity and without prosperity we become slaves to the state in, in one way or another and so that uh, you can I don't think you can separate the two things freedom and prosperity and, and and capitalism
1: your reference to pizza it sounds like that's done with a nod to Lawrence Reed i pencil uh, Except you,
2: yeah, that's my version of the eye pencil story because I think college kids can relate to pizza better than pencils. Most a lot of them don't even know what a pencil is um, because they've they've been punching a, a cell phone or a computer their entire lives to communicate.
1: Uh, Hayek explains to us in his writing that the the largest conceit, the the biggest failure of Keynesian top down economics, which is the direction in which we are moving, as you point out in your book, is as simple as an absence of enough knowledge. That the knowledge of millions of people acting independently, creating the market, buying and selling and making decisions, the collective result of those millions of people cannot and will never be duplicated by, no matter how large it is, system of people at the top making those decisions. I think you pointed out in your book um, how many uh, consumer goods the Russian e- economists were trying to manage at the heyday of the USSR. So just share with us a few thoughts and then we'll move on about the role of the collective knowledge of the individual versus government and how that is, in my mind, the most persuasive argument in favor of the free market.
2: That's what uh, Friedrich Hayek called the pretense of knowledge, the idea that a a, a group of politicians would somehow have uh, superior knowledge than the uh, thousands of individuals who actually make the economic world work and do a better job of it. And I tell the story in my book of how in the the 90s I was teaching an MBA class at Loyola University in Baltimore where I taught. And uh, I was asked about this, this question by one of the students. And I I asked them if they could think of any, any product produced by the Soviet Union under socialism that was competitive in world markets and there was one guy in the class who was an army officer there was a, a military base nearby and he was working on an MBA degree while he was in the army and he said AK47s and uh, and I, but I I had to remind them that since they had no they didn't have private property and they did not have free market prices in, in the in the Soviet Union and socialism that uh, as far as we know they might have spent 10,000 dollars producing every AK47 that would sell for one thousand dollars, because there are there were no profit and loss statements under socialism. So yes, they produced uh, an AK forty-seven, but uh, they probably um, I mean, it's a sure thing that they used far more resources to make it than uh, than than what it, they could get for it selling it on the world market. And another student uh, piped in and said caviar, and I had I had just published an article. About how pollution was so bad in the Soviet Union that they almost eliminated the sturgeon population, which is where caviar comes from, sturgeon fish, and so they almost destroyed the the natural caviar industry as far as that goes. But that's it, and so they they could they never they never produced a single product that, despite all the efforts, that was competitive in world markets with capitalism, and despite all the efforts. And and Hayek's pretense of knowledge is one reason. And another reason, though, is to the absence of free market prices determined by supply and demand or the interaction of buyers and sellers that reflect real information about how scarce or not so scarce uh, uh, things are and and the intensity of demand for them by the people, by the consumers. That's what prices tell us. They're they're like street signs in, in 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 a street, in a city. And without free market prices, you, you really have no idea how to produce things. Uh, for example, there, there's something like, like 2,000 separate parts to an automobile. And just the windshield alone, you might have 20 different types of glass. How do you, ta- how do you decide which type to use in your, in your automobile factory? Well, you compare price, just like you and I do when we go shopping for blue jeans. We compare price, and we try to get comparable quality at a lower price. And but you have to have the price. You have to be able to decide how to how to uh, minimize the cost of producing that thing, and, and then selling it in competition in the marketplace. And we need prices to do that. And without prices, it's an impossibility. And th- that's that's I think an even more important reason why socialism failed and will always fail than prior Hayek's uh, pretense of knowledge. Uh, Ludwig von Mises called this the calculation problem. Uh, Hayek called his Theory, the knowledge problem. Your explanation
1: of USSR and the AK 47 is so telling. And it offers, if our audience is able to just think it through, it explains so much about what's going on in our economic life here in the United States. And the point that you make indirectly is those who want to defend a top down economic system it is easy there will always be something that is produced of that other people will want at the price there will always be but the question is what's behind the curtain what what was lost in producing This one victory, this one solar factory in the desert, what was lost? What would the money have been used for had it not been used for that? So we get seduced by government defending governmental allocation of resources. We get seduced by government pointing to a, maybe minuscule, a good thing. But that's a distraction. That's a, the point is, the economy as a whole, was it better off with top-down or bottom-up? And your AK-47 story nails that down perfectly, and it helps all of us when we process what we are being told by those who would persuade us, we now can process it and not be distracted by an alleged proof that a top-down economic systems work by asking the question, at what expense? And who suffered? And it's the same thing as wealth transfers. If you do wealth transfers and only point to the recipient how much better off they are, and ignore the one from whom the wealth was transferred, it looks like heaven. But that's because you only see half the story. Now, you have, um, we're now going to go from pure science to applied science. And the applied science, uh, we're going to apply the lessons in your book and the lessons which your students would have gotten from your class and apply that to the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh my God, what a misnomer. What, a, um, what about truth and advertising? If a private business would take the same liberties in naming a product, they'd be in prison. So tell us first the big picture, and then we'll drill down. Tell us what's going on. And never mind, I don't care so much about how it got there, the back office and the trade offs. Just we'll talk about the result. That Monster piece of legislation. Uh, what is enraging about it? Tell us about it by applying the principles in your book to that standout well, well, first piece of well, legislation. There was a
2: Democratic Congresswoman yesterday who came out and said, well, primary, the primary thing about the so called Inflation Reduction Act is that. It's, it's, it's really the green New Deal it's really a, a, a massive amount of additional environmental regulation and the opinion polls that the Democratic Party pays for tell them that people are concerned about inflation more than almost anything else right now and so they said well yeah this is it's it's all about uh, strangling capitalism with more environmental regulation so let's not call it so anything related to that, let's call it an Inflation Reduction Act, to make people think it's addressing their main main concern. And so, so, for, so that's a big lie there. And there was, but the even bigger lie is that they're going to spend an additional several hundred billion dollars, which will pump up demand in the economy. The Fed will print up extra money to to finance this. That will increase inflation. At the same time, they are, they are taxing production even more than it is already taxed. There are higher corporate taxes, and there are higher, especially on energy. Taxed, they, they want to destroy the energy industry altogether, uh, the, the current administration does. And that will also push up prices of just about everything, because we need energy to produce just about everything. Uh, and and we, we need energy to, to sit at a computer and produce a book let alone manufacture an automobile. And so the effect of the, uh, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act is unequivocally to increase inflation uh, with all this additional spending. So that's the big lie about it. And it's starting to come out that they, they're starting to admit that they lied about it.
1: I'd just like to jump in for one second. You had mentioned the massive increase in energy costs, and of course you are right. Uh, especially fossil fuel but not limited. So you're you're right. You then said which will destroy the energy industry. Isn't it the case that it won't destroy the energy 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 industry. It'll just cause them to increase their costs, which means all the costs downstream go up. Everything goes up and ultimately it's the It's the two of us, plus a lot of other people out there who ultimately bear the burden. So the energy industry can literally absorb most costs and just it's a pass through. They'll make a profit anyway. So it almost when you say destroy the energy industry, that almost some people would say they deserve to be destroyed but once it's explained to them that no not quite you're really going to harm everybody and unselectively everybody takes it in the shorts then everybody will understand that it is in nobody's best interest to increase the cost of production is is that a, a, an appropriate qualification on what you had observed about that part of the bill yeah, what what I said was they want
2: to, want to. destroy okay, the energy industry, but but yes, uh, you know when uh, when when the Biden administration first came in, the his energy secretary appeared on one of the TV news shows, and the uh, naive commentator asked her, uh, "Well, what what can the administration do to to bring down the price of gasoline?" And she laughed. She laughed her head off. She just giggled uh, uncontrollably. And I knew exactly what she was thinking. This was a hardcore leftist, and here they are. They had just uh, vetoed the uh, Keystone Pipeline from Canada. They're they're talking about how they want to ban offshore drilling and and and, re- and uh, eliminate uh, uh, the ability uh, on government pro- lands, government property, to drill for oil. They wanted to increase the price of oil and gas. They want gasoline prices to be a hundred dollars a gallon to, to, to force us into electric cars. That's their agenda and and so that's why she was laughing and she didn't give them an answer. She didn't say one thing about what they, they had in mind of doing to bring down the price of gas because they don't want to bring down a price you know, they, they want gas to get more expensive, not less expensive as long as they can get away with it politically. And so that and that 's what they're up to, and that 's what they've done and so and and so they, they can 't pass the energy companies can 't pass on those costs indefinitely because i don 't know about you, but i don 't have a bottomless bank account you know there's only so much money I can afford to pay for transportation and um when I first visited the country of Turkey, I have friends in Turkey, and I have an academic conference I went to every year in southern Turkey <coughs> excuse me, and at that time. The price of gas there was the equivalent of $18 a gallon. And uh, a young man that I met there had an MBA degree. He worked for a large corporation. had a good job. And he drove a scooter. He couldn't afford a car because they had 100% taxes on automobiles. So if Toyota shipped a $30,000 Camry there, there would be a $30,000 tax on, on that Toyota. And so uh, uh, you know, and so that's, I mean, that's one thing that I'm not saying we're headed there, but uh, there is a limit to uh, the ability of the energy companies and the car companies, for that matter, to pass on these taxes and these environmental regulatory costs uh, to the people.
1: What are the other headlines uh, of what enraged you? I mean, that's like an open-ended question. We'll be on until Christmas weekend. Uh, Christmas time. But what are the other headline grabbing elements in the Inflation Reduction Act that, uh, as an economist, uh, just made you roll your eyes or whatever you do when you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach?
2: Well, the the most atrocious thing was they want to hire 87,000 new IRS agents. And uh, reportedly, seventy thousand of them are to be armed, and uh, and so uh, it, you know Americans once fought a re- fought a revolution over such a thing. Uh, in the Declaration of Independence, uh, Jefferson wrote the, the, this train of abuses by King George the Third, and one of them is that he has sent swarms of officers into our homes to eat out our substance, and these were armed tax collectors. Who, who barged into people's homes with guns to, to enforce the stamp tax and other taxes. And we got rid of that by fighting a revolution. And then here, and, and there's an interesting story about that. And after the revolution, it was Alexander Hamilton who wanted to bring that back. He, uh, there was a whiskey tax rebellion. They, they imposed a tax on whiskey, and Western Pennsylvania farmers protested, refused to pay it. And they even tarred and feathered the federal tax collectors when they came around. And Hamilton uh, talked George Washington into taking some 13,000 soldiers into western Pennsylvania to try to enforce the whiskey tax. It all turned into a bust. Uh, Washington went home and uh, there were two of the protesters who were convicted uh, of tax evasion, I guess. But George Washington pardoned them both. But that was the, uh, the first attempt to resurrect uh, an army of tax, armed tax collectors. Fast forward all these years, and here's Joe Biden proposing, bringing this back, the same thing that we fought the American Revolution against, or one of the things, anyway, that, we, that the revolution was fought against. So it's atrocious, and uh, the, the the income tax and the IRS need to be abolished altogether and not not given guns at our expense. One of the
1: um, um, most dishonest statements about the 87,000 uh, new tax collectors, although some of them will be doing something other than tax collecting, but most of them will be doing tax collecting, is But this is nothing other than a tax increase. Now, the words tax increase... The public has been deceived to think those words mean what percentage tax rate is in the statute. That's false. Who cares? What people care about is how much taxes they pay. What the statute says is irrelevant. And the the whole claim, let's have 87,000 tax collectors just so everybody pays their fair share. Well, what any way you slice it, people will be paying more than they pay now. Does it matter if you're the one making the payment, whether you're paying more because they disallowed some deduction you thought you had versus they raise your rate? You're still writing a check and you didn't write a check before. So any way you slice it, this is a tax increase dressed up as a we're getting people to pay their fair share. And what in the world does this have to do with inflation reduction is beyond me because it just, all it's doing is it's transferring wealth. And I'd like you to address this point because it's an important one in your book. It's transferring wealth from the private sector to the government, any way you slice it. If Biden is correct, if he's correct, there'll be more money flowing to the government later than now. Well, that means that as an economist, and I'd ask you to address this, as an economist, you ask yourself, who would you rather make a decision how a dollar is spent? Who will make a decision that in the collective betterment of all of society government which makes decisions based upon the politics of it all or 300 million americans making private decisions very small but collectively dictating how the economy goes so help us uh, in your in your book and in your the core thesis about a free market versus government Speak to, if you would, because you do in your book, the differing results of government making a decision, the results on the collective well-being, collective, not groups to get lucky, collective well-being of government making decisions on how to spend more of the money or individuals acting privately making the same decision?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, the, another big lie that um, Biden's economic advisor has been telling about this, is I saw him on TV, his top economic advisor saying, well, if we do collect more taxes, um, there, that'll, be co- that'll be less spending by ordinary people, and that will reduce inflation. That's what he said. But of course, that same money, like you said, goes to the government and there will be more spending by the government and that will increase inflation. And so so it's just total nonsense that they're, they're hoping that um, people are dumb enough to fall for this. When, when they say that, when you get this guy in a nice suit with 17 American flags behind him in the White House behind them, they they think people are going to believe that. But in my book, you know, I point out the the uh, yeah, the the simple truth that uh in in the market in the private sector uh if a when a business serves its customers better it makes money it profits and vice versa if it serves its customers poorly it uh, it loses money and uh, in the government uh failure is financial success in the private sector you have to serve your fellow man to be successful but in the government, the worse you do in, in whatever it is you're supposed to be doing, educating the kids in government schools or getting people out of poverty or whatever, the worse you do, the more tax dollars they take from us. Because they always say, well, the reason why we failed was we didn't have enough money. And that you, you blow up the space shuttle years ago. NASA got a 50% budget increase after blowing up a, a, a rocket ship. And so failure is success in government. And so it's, it's a totally different ball game. That's why if you take a uh, million dollars out of the private sector with a supposedly a jobs program to create government jobs, well, for every government job that might pay somebody 30000 a year, they, they, it's not unusual that they would spend 10 times that in bureaucracy and paperwork. To, to provide the one thirty thousand dollar a year job, as, as an anecdote on that, I, I once had a, a student in, in Baltimore who uh, worked uh, for a, on her spare time with a charity, and the charity got a grant from the state of Maryland to provide um, employment for Russian uh, refugees. This is many years ago. Right? People who came here from Russia and they and the and, uh, and needed to, you know, find a job and get start a life, new life in a new country. And they got a $100,000 grant. And I and she invited me to give a talk to these people, a luncheon talk. And I gave a talk. And they brought the one woman that they found a job for. And this young woman had found a part-time, 20-hour-a-week secretary job. And that was it, $100,000. But we had a very nice lunch at a very expensive restaurant. And there are about 30 people there sitting around the table enjoying the very nice lunch at the at the expense of the taxpayers of the state of Maryland. And just one little anecdote to show you how uh, the transferring money from the private sector to the government sector uh, impoverishes us always and, and everywhere.
1: It seems to me from what I have read that selling free market economics to high school and college students is a hard sell. From what I have read and from the professors that I've had been lucky enough to have on my show, as I am with you, it's a hard sell. Now, when you present this point of view to this hands folded in front of them, hard sell audience, what... Helps you the most make the sale.
2: Well, students, college students, like everybody else, uh, very often resent learning that they've been lied to or fooled about things. And so, if you can, if you can uh, explain how markets work with real-world examples, and they contradict what their socialist professors have been telling them all these years. It's, um, the, it, can tr- it turns them around, and a lot of them get angry that they've been sort of uh, bamboozled by their other professors. I had one student uh, who was a very memorable student. He came into my class, and he bragged to me about uh, that he, had, he was a, a rel- uh, faithful uh, donor to uh, PBS, public television. At the end of the semester, he told me, I'll never give them another dime. And, and so, and I've had I've had conversions like the many conversions like that, but I stick to the logic and and also reality. Uh, I always have my students read about real world markets and uh, and, uh, and and economic reality. Of course, it's easy to sell socialism if all you talk about is a social a socialist dream world and not the real world. But I also teach them that taught them about the reality of what happened in, under socialism. And I, I even used their Hayek's the Road to Serfdom as a te- as a, one of the textbooks in one of my classes, and and so uh, that that and I was pretty successful in, in a lot of in uh, recruiting a lot of students like that. Not recruiting, but uh, having them open their eyes to uh, to economic reality.
1: As a uh, for many many years a college professor teaching economics, you have to have had days. When you felt kind of cynical and kind of, oh, wow, what an uphill battle. What do you think? What is the appeal, the surface appeal of selling what is labeled as socialism? It's not, but who cares? Uh, Top down governmental control of a large swath of the economy. What is the appeal of that? to the audience that seems to embrace it? Is it just the most base feeling? It's a transfer to them as they see it, and therefore it's good because somebody else's property is being taken from them under force? Or is there something else? What is the appeal? And one, you and I and those who we kind of hang out with would say would be very jealous of guarding our freedom, freedom to carrying on occupation, freedom to live our economic lives. So why is freedom, do you think? It's obviously I'm asking for, for speculation. What What is the appeal of an economic system
2: that has a profoundly less freedom? Well, to some of the students, they're, they're, they're sold on free stuff. You know, they, they think money grows on trees and they're taught – that, uh, you know, you vote for Bernie Sanders, you'll get free health care, free food, free this, free that. Uh, they're going to uh, do away with your student debt and, and make somebody else pay for it and you, so you can become a freeloader on other people. And so a lot of students kind of like that. They're never taught the first thing about economics. Uh, but as soon as they get a job, as soon as they graduate and get a job, they they immediately turn around. <laughs> I've, I've had emails and letters from hundreds over the years Maybe thousands, who knows, who who, uh, who realize that once they became working taxpayers and they, st- and they get that first paycheck and they get a big chunk of it taken out and withholding, they, they start to change their mind about all the free stuff. But I think the main thing is that they're not taught things like my pizza example. They're not taught about how markets work. They're they're taught they're taught a false theory of what markets are like. Uh, for example, and that when we had uh, every time there's a scandal. Um, they're they're taught that well that's that's how markets are they're 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 always like that whether it's the Enron scandal of the early two thousands or the Great Recession of two thousand eight it's 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 in they're taught that it's endemic and uh, but I I would teach my students that well there are sinners in all walks of life so if you read about some swindler the Bernie Madoff or somebody like that. Well, he's a sinner. He's uh, and uh, and there's there are sinners in all walks of life, including your left wing professors. And so, uh, and, but but Bernie Madoff was not your typical capitalist. He was a, he was a crook. And so, uh, and, but they're they're not taught that. They're taught that. Well, this is this is how Wall Street operates, uh, more or less. And I've, I've seen it and I've heard it like that. I'm not saying everybody teaches these things, but I've that's sort of the way they're they're taught and why why it, seems to turn out this way.
1: What do you think? Have you formed an opinion on how life in this country will be altered once the, I hate to say the words, Inflation Reduction Act kicks in? What will we start to observe? What will change, if anything? Or is it while it's It's a profoundly ill-conceived piece of legislation. Is the economy just too big, so we've survived worse and we'll survive that? Or is there likely to be noticeable adverse effects? How will somebody who looks see a difference once the statute kicks in?
2: Well, uh, one thing that could conceivably happen is that the Republicans could gain control of the Congress and defund this this act. Uh, I'm not that optimistic that that will happen, but it is a possibility. I don't know what what probability number I would put on it, but that could happen, uh, especially if it becomes extremely unpopular, because a big part of it is is a massive additional government intervention in the name of uh, environmentalism. And uh, in uh, in my writings, I, I quoted uh, the late Robert Halbrunner, you know, who was a socialist economist. In 1990, he wrote an article in the Atlantic magazine. Uh, there was sort of a mea culpa. He said, that, you know, the, the intellectual battle between capitalism and socialism is over. Capitalism has won. But then at the end, he says, but there is still hope, fellow socialists. He said, we can... Have socialism, after all, through government regulation in the name of saving the planet. That's how we can go in the back door, sort of backdoor socialism, and you know, sort of regulatory socialism. And that's what we're seeing, and that's what a big part of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act does, by piling on thousands of additional environmental regulations, everything from uh, how you how you get the kind of windows you put in your home or your business office. Uh, and everything else to, uh, you know, more taxes on energy.
1: And that's a that's a perfect way as we wind down um, to sort of wind, uh, end our discussion. We're kind of ending where we started, where even if, even if, but we know, of course, it's not going to happen. But even if there is any kind of an improvement, whatever the heck that word means, in the uh, climate, whatever that means, even if the question must be asked, at what cost? Because course, let's understand, if you take all of the resources of the country and apply those resources to one singular goal, you'll probably accomplish the goal and leave behind a country in shambles. It's nothing other than a war. You win the war, but then you ask yourself, at what cost? Thank you so much, Tom, for sharing your thoughts with us. Most importantly, for writing the book, which is a valuable addition to anybody's paper or digital library. It is an easy read. It will help you so much understand what's going on in Washington, in Albany, in Sacramento, how they're out to get us, and what you can do about it. Thanks a lot to Tom. And thank you, of course, to my loyal listeners and friends out there. I hope you have enjoyed the past hour and found it to be worthwhile. Have a nice rest of the day. In fact, rest of your lives.